So welcome everyone to our very first podcast, apart from uh, the Three Worlds podcast that you've heard with Ty and Yarika and myself, Greg. I'm really pleased to bring our first one and I'll introduce our special guest who's in our studio right now, Mr. Alan Parsons. But we feel it's time for Australians to be strong in building bridges between the cultural divisions that began in 1788. And Australia has traditionally divided itself into the three silos. So part of the three worlds is to bring together the First Nations people, our Indigenous uh, people from this land, the multicultural, as the politicians call it, the new migrants and the refugees, and all the others from the gold seekers and the convicts and all the early farmers. Well, I'm proud to be a sixth generation convict and having this opportunity to talk to a First Nations person, Alan. Our aim is to bring these three silos together under the banner of intercultural and intergenerational conversations, better known by our First Nations people as yarn ups. So here we are. This is part of our Coming Together project series. And uh, we're going to have a collection of guests today. I'm really pleased to introduce Alan. But before we do, I'd like to do an acknowledgement uh, to country, pay our respects to our traditional custodians, particularly in this land that we're on and doing this podcast down in West End today. It's the Yagara and the Jurupur speaking people. So we'd like to pay our respects to all the elders from our First Nations, plus over these 230 years, all the elders that have come to congregate on this continent with our First Nations people. And we deeply respect the Australian Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander people of this land. But anyway, we're here to talk to our special guest today. This is Uncle Alan Parsons, and uh, I'd like to hand the ball over to Alan to give us some background, where he's from, who's his mob. Over to you. Thank you, Greg. Yes, it's um, quite a, um, a wonderful opportunity we have here of um, creating this um, podcast arrangement that we can um, have a dialogue of sharing um, and to discuss different aspects within the framework of who we are in at this point in time in this land. So a little bit of background about myself. Um, I identify with my grandfather's people, and it's Bidra, Yemen people from Carnarvon Gorge in central Queensland. Um, and so um, these people, if ever you've been to Carnarvon Gorge, mm, it's a very place. powerful place. Utopia. Nearly. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's, it's kind of like almost, you can say, a miniature Grand Canyon in as much as the river has carved its way down through the landscape and created um, uh, the escarpments and the vegetation. And, and so consequently, there's a lot of art, art uh, being represented in the whole of that area. Um, and there's an energy that is... Um, really quite powerful when you go into there. Um, um, I was able to go there and around 2008 for the first time. Um, and so and the background was, of course, that uh, I was technically of the stolen generation. 
Mm, technically. So technically. Yeah, so expand that. What happened? Okay. So when I say technically, basically what it was that my parents had me and then were not in a position to care for me. Um, so I was fostered out. No paperwork, no nothing was really like what happened because I was born in Charleville, Western Queensland. So in those days, you didn't use paperwork. Your, your word was done with the shake of a hand and you kept your word. It's that simple. Um, anyway, the thing is that um, uh, I was then taken to St George, um, which is down the road a little bit from Charlieville. Then I was impacted with a fairly serious medical condition known as osteogenesis imperfecta or OI. Um, and so anyone that's familiar with that, it's called also bushel bones uh, disease. Anyway, the thing is that the whole thing with this uh, medical condition escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where, you know, I spent about the first 14 years of my life um, inside institutions or hospitals navigating through this whole thing of a medical condition that very few actually understood or had any answers to. And, and in this day and age, we know that there's DNA sequencing, there's all kinds of other aspects which allow the medical people to have greater insight to some of those um, fine-tuning of, you know, how we can assist people. And so, um, yeah, first 14 years, hospitals, institutions, and not knowing. Not knowing? That my parents were First Nations people. Oh. So when did you, when were you told about that? So when my foster father died in 1982, I was told at his, at his funeral that my parents were First Nations people. And I kind of thought, ooh, how interesting is that? So my mind went back to a couple of occasions in the past that I'd reacted a particular way to certain circumstances and situations and I couldn't quite put my finger on <laughs> as mm -hmm. to why feel... I was feeling the way I was yeah. feeling, you know. Anyway, as soon as that was revealed, I kind of thought, oh, <laughs> that's probably the reason why. Um, and so that was really interesting to then um, open up that opportunity to explore, as we say, who's your mob? So then... You mentioned to me once and told me about you went on a big walkabout once you discovered that. So where did you go? Where did you go and explore? Pretty much everywhere. Mm. Yeah, went to Cape York, went to Central Australia, went all over South Australia, all through the western parts of New South Wales. It was quite a considerable journey to be able to uh, really explore cultural identity mm. and I think that's the key to um, who we are and why, where we are in this stream of time. So uh, I hung out with some First Nations people right up the other side of Cooktown, right up in the bush, sitting around a campfire with the old elder, two dingo dogs, looking up at the stars and being told stories about the stars mm. and what the stars actually mean. Um, so that was really, like, seriously all right. So how old were you at this stage? Uh, in my 30s. Wow. So you've gone 30 years and then you discover. But were your foster parents good people to you? They were brilliant people. Yep. 
brilliant people. I mean, seriously, you could not ask for better. Um, seriously, you could not ask for better. So incredibly blessed. Mm-hmm. But um, that that chapter closed and so another chapter opened um, and then it was like, let's explore. You know, what's all this about? What I love when I met you, Alan, is the fact that you will never use the word disability. You have a unique ability which sounds really superheroish, and I love that about you, you know, because you're always so optimistic and positive and, you know, taken this on board really well. Um, and for those of you, the listeners, because we're not videoing this podcast, Alan stands at about how tall? Well, and me socks about four foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> a four foot tall man. Yeah. He's tall, but he's tall in <laughs> inside of wisdom. But Alan, what is it? What does being known as an Australian actually mean to you? Like knowing that you've come from that world where you did know your First Nation and then at 30 finding your mob and obviously over the years you've explored what it means to be First Nation at many levels um, from inside, not externally outside now, part of that community. But what does it mean to you to be Australian? It's about identity, Mm. That's the the, the, the the sum total of where we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you can you can put labels on, you can identify with a certain tribal group or whatever. But what is your identity? Where where is it that you fit in the scheme of things? What is it that you embrace about your identity as an a First Nations person? Um, and so it's kind of interesting that um, this this whole aspect of Australian it's it's a bit of an open-ended question in many ways because as we will go into later on in our discussion, there's lots of layers to being an Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a First Nations person, um, when I went to Carnarvon Gorge uh, 2008 on my way back from Uluru. Um, I walked in and um, I went and walked the eight and a half kilometres each way, crossed the creek about 15 times, which, by the way, you're not supposed to be able to do on crutches or with a disability. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was kind of really amazing because when I got to the end, I climbed up this escarpment area and there was all this artwork and it transported me back into... Uh, a space that you could argue is was about 60,000 years. You go into this vortex, into this time tunnel, you go into this this space of connection with your mob. Um, and so that's a very, very powerful thing to be able to do. It's not just pretty artwork on a, on a bit of sandstone. It's actually connecting. But you're also a visual artist too, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, so when did that start? When when was that journey for you? Yeah, about 2004 or 5. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow, not, so, not that long ago really no. in the scheme of things. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I think there's, you can rightly say, Greg, that there's catalysts mm. that, that create opportunities and there's catalysts which you're guided to like mm, explore Mm. Um, and so sometimes there's a little bit of support there but other times it's this deep sense of got to do that. And and you just had a recent opportunity to share your 
art and your expertise in that area to a, a, a group of your mob up at Woodfordia. So tell us a bit about that. Oh, mate, <laughs> mate, just as well we've got a bit of time on our hands here. Um, yeah, that was extraordinary. For anyone that's ever gone to Woodfordia, it's, um, what's that, four days and four nights non-stop, you know, music, you name it, you name it, you name it, and it's kind of like, yeah, after the four days you need to come up for air and grab some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really invigorating and exciting. But what it is, is the energy of the land that is Jinnabara country mm. up in that in that area. And so we had a welcome to country by the Jinnabara people up on the hill outside where the um, Buddhists do the morning ritual of the first day of the year using their voices to be able to honour the sunrise as it comes up over the edge of the the, the, the landscape. and This is at the Woodford Festival, at, so you're talking it's about. It's up yeah. in the outside of the, yeah. the main area, Greg, and, and there's a big sign, Woodfordia, mm. uh, big letters, but up the back is a, a mud brick kind of seat where the, the, the people sit and they use their voices in that deep guttural, oh, I'll, I'll have a go at it. <laughs> Okay, it's like a... And so they, they use that, just their voices, to honour the dawn of another day, another year, another life. You've got a connection with the Tibetan monks, haven't you? Something happened in your life. What happened? What was the question? Uh, the Tibetan monks. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, not really Tibetans, not really monks. It's more to do with, um, we're getting a little bit off track here, Greg, but that's what you do so well. Yeah, no, um, you went to Italy sorry? with the monks, with the monasteries. No, basically what it was is that up in the vortex of the Glasshouse Mountains, I was taken to a retreat. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people may be familiar with a place called Chenrezig, that's not far from there, but it wasn't that at all. It was another um, um, setup, and so I was taken there. And there's a four-bedroom home. There's a, a meditation room. There's another room with a beautiful mandala painted on the ground, um, mate, mate. And so in the in the landscape was all these icons of all this, you know, Tibetan mm. symbols. Okay, that's the connection. Well, it is. It yeah. is. And so I thought. Eh, and I thought, how right is it that these people have been, had to flee Tibet because of what has happened to them through other people, Chinese mainly, and they've gone to different places around the planet and then they've ended up in the Glasshouse Mountains and ended up in the vortex of all these mountains. Totally, totally get it. Mm. The only question I had was, have you asked permission to be here? Out of deep, 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 deep respect, you know, for these fellas. And so I sort of left it at that. And then about five, six months later, their leader, they're known as Rinpoche, and it's a term which is basically meaning reincarnated one. There's a lot of them. Dalai Lama's mom. Yeah. Dalai Lama's mom. Yeah. Anyway, this this bloke he comes out, 
and he's sitting there and he gave a little bit of a yarn up about what he's doing um, and then I was invited to stand up next to him and I gave him a ribbon of red, yellow and black, which is our colours, and I cut it in half and I put it a little bit around his wrist to acknowledge because he actually asked permission to be there, mm. which was beautiful. And the other half we put in a glass jar and that was interred into the land to honour and respect the land with some special things that they felt. And I thought, wow, how good is that? Yeah. And I thought, hmm, that's nice. Deep respect for everyone because I told the story about the Glasshouse Mountains and now they're family, all family, and there's consequences and there's ramifications and there's, yeah, it's really important to, to understand that whole narrative. So anyway, the thing is that um, I thought to myself, okay, so what's for lunch? <laughs> and we broke for lunch. And about eight months later, I get a phone call or an email from them saying that Rinpoche has um, saved all these very precious icons from the Chinese and they're putting him in this amazing museum and that um, I w- they said, oh, we would be delighted if you could join us in Tuscany in Italy. Wow. So, That's amazing. Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, where to begin? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so it was really beautiful and really at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's about when you honour country and when you have the deep respect for your cultural connections and everything and you don't um, create animosity, you don't create angst, you don't create a feeling of anything other than inclusion, um, then people often will respond in a beautiful way and these fellas did. So I had a plane ticket to go to Tuscany in Italy and spent six weeks over in Italy and we went all over. That's amazing. And that was really amazing. So, yeah, at the end of the day, um, it's really something that when you embrace your cultural roots and you honour that in the deepest respectful way, all manner of things can happen and sometimes do so. <laughs> mm. So with the, obviously having some travel externally um, and, and then coming back to Australia, what, what are a few things that you particularly love about this country? It's vastness is one thing and the fact that you can go from area to area and the climate and the landscape is so diverse um, and when you are aware that all the different tribal groups that were here, how they worked in harmony with all of that. How many tribal groups oh, They were reckon there? about 230. Okay. Yeah, but wow. um, that's open for mm, discussion. But um, the Tyndale's map is, is a little bit mm, inaccurate, but that's a guide. You know. Anyway, it's kind of interesting that... Um, when do you understand that with that many tribal groups, how everyone actually worked together? So that was something that I became incredibly aware of. And I've said before that the diversity, you can go to Cape York where the rainforest meets the reef. You can go to Central Australia where the seas lie in the sand until rain comes, you know, sometimes for years. 
and you go down the Stone Mountains with the snow country and, and so on. So, and when the wildflowers bloom out in West Australia, it's a carpet of amazing colour. Mm. So that's something that um, we have, mm. we have. Um, and I feel that too often we get trapped into technology and get trapped into all kinds of other elements of, you know, ticking boxes off and say, oh, well, I did Cape York or I did this and I did that. Some people even say, oh, I climbed the roof. <laughs> well, what we do. <laughs> And so is it just ticking boxes or is it you connecting to the landscape and showing deep honour and respect? So when I went there last time to Uluru, there was a lot of people who started out feeling they needed to climb and then they got into their energy and kind of figured, I don't need to climb. So that's a powerful thing. Yeah, it's good that they closed it down, isn't and it? And so that, that, yeah. that was something that was important for the Anangu Pichinjara people to actually do. Yes. Um, so that, that's some of the things that I really feel are really special about this land and the connections that I have. Yeah. So with Australia, um, what are some of the things that you'd actually like to change? Like if you, uh, if you were to dream um, and, you know, you're, you're, this is Alan's country or you'd like to put your ideas forward, what would you really like to change about Australia? And does does anything need to change? Yeah, well, um, it comes down to awareness that mm, so many people, like I said before, there was a whole bunch of people went to Uluru with the intention of climbing. And then when they got there, they kind of realised, I don't need to climb. All I need to do is walk around. So that element of awareness opens another whole avenue of how people engage with and also adjust their own without you needing to get the big stick out and have a rule book about what you can and can't do. Um, and so that's kind of really interesting that when people make choices themselves, that becomes a very powerful thing to be able to facilitate that, to be able to encourage that and so on. So it's kind of something that I'm not sure we can actually change, but we can certainly encourage. Mm -hmm. So if you were able to, what would you set out to change from a governance and sort of political perspective? Well, sacked a lot that's in at the moment. <laughs> I think a lot of people might agree yeah. with you there, Alan, <laughs> not to get too political. but Well, it's kind of interesting that when you go back in time to um, how the political structure was set up in this country, um, it was based on an English or British uh, governance. You know, we've got convicts, we've got all kinds of elements there. Um, Proud and, convicts, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you and I, Greg, have had conversations around that, you know, about your heritage, you know. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of like, yeah. And there was a lot of things that uh, those people had no real choice over. Correct. So they were sort of, let's say, stolen from their homeland to come out to occupy a country. Not all of those people were willing participants, you know, to be here. 
but we won't get off track with that because I can talk about that at other stages in other podcasts. But um, where where do you see Australia in five to ten years, Alan? What's your thoughts and what would be some incentives that you feel would be important to implement, do you think, to see any sort of... So one, one of the things from our First Nations perspective is to go down the pathway of formulating a treaty. Yeah. Which becomes a constitutional document that's not a constitution but connected to the constitution as far as a treaty to include an honour, respect and and show um, that mm, First Nations people have a voice. Now, you've just come back yesterday from a Sunshine Coast Council-run event and I we both know Stephen Mam, who's a Torres Strait Islander man who's been partly responsible for this, First Nations Self-Determination, Representation and Wellbeing Forum. Do you see this as part of good change for the next five or ten years, all these activities that are coming up that have happened and occurred, like Uluru Statement of the Heart, something like the First Nations Self-Determination, Representation and Wellbeing Forum? Are these things that will change attitudes and enable First Nations people to get this treaty into action? Well, it's kind of interesting. It's easy to say, hard to do, um, but at the end of the day, there has to be a starting point. And where, why is it hard to do? When when we look at the Maori uh, peoples of uh, New Zealand, yes, you know, well, <laughs> and and why why to a lot of listeners they probably wonder, well, why isn't it just as easy to have a treaty here with First well, Nations? When when you look at the Waitangi Treaty, which I have. It's actually open to interpretation. Which, well, they have a voice, though, don't they? They have a, a voice within their parliament. Well, it's the interpretation of what is captured in the Waitangi Treaty. So it's kind of interesting that um, what the Maori people saw and what the English saw were two different things. So it's kind of interesting that... Um, it's it's not an easy thing to do. No, so that's why it's hard to navigate and probably more complex in Australia with First Nations because there's, there's so not many. a particular yeah, there's not a particular one or two chiefs or leaders. There's many traditional custodians, isn't there? Yes. The point you were making about how many different nations, whether it's two hundred and thirty or whether it's seven hundred, whatever the truth is, somewhere in between there. So yes. that's a lot of people today. Yes. To come to an agreement, isn't yes, it? and so you have to have consensus around this mm. um, and that takes a lot of negotiating. So, mm. yeah. So unification and healing, and these are two words you've used when I've met you and in various conversations. Do you want to sort of expand on that, what that means? Well, the words unification obviously means unified, mm-hmm. um, but that can be... Um, seen as the whole gamut of what okay. that so unifying heart and mind, body and spirit. Yep. So um, it's kind of interesting that unification is something that you reach consensus about in knowing that this is where we would like to go. So do you think as Australians, as the people of Australia, whatever that mix up as we were talking in the beginning, you know, the First Nations, the multicultural and, and the, 
you know, the convicts and the, the colonists and so on, is are you saying there should be a unification of these three mobs, if you like? Well, it's, it, 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 it really goes without saying, does it not, that the more we appreciate that each element has a place, each element has an opportunity to share, each element has their part to play in that whole arrangement of things without the exclusion of another. Yeah. Um, what aspect of unification would you feel should be incorporated into the educational system? Well, there's a big push on language. Ah. Which really is, big We come back to identity too, isn't Language exactly. and identity are so exactly. closely linked. Exactly. comes back to language. Um, and the thing is that there's language learning centres around the country where um, this is something that, um, and this is what the Maori have done. And, and I think when any culture always keeps that connection to their language, that's so important. Absolutely. And hence they can walk in two or three worlds. Absolutely. You know, and, and speak English but speak their own traditional Absolutely. and speak others if they wish. Absolutely. I think that's powerful. So, Alan, let me ask you a question. This hey. is always topical. Invasion Day or Australia Day? Does the date matter? Well, maybe not. Okay. Maybe Flush not. that out. However, if it is that you want to pick a date, the date that I lean heavily towards is the 27th of May. Ah, now tell us why. 27th of May in 1967 was the day when the people of this country changed the constitution through a referendum to include Indigenous people as counted. Mm, interesting. So that's, that's that moment in time where they were no longer flora and fauna. Yes. <laughs> and seen by the English, so to speak, and, yes. and everyone else as human beings and part yes. of being able to vote and so yes. on. Isn't that incredible? It's not that long ago when you think about it in time. That's incredible, Alan. Um, so who has actually inspired you to um, put your energies and contribute to your community? Very hard to single out one or two. Many, many, many influences. So, so your own adopted uh, father? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing was seen as an obstacle. Mm. Now, he taught you how to like, Absolutely. build your car and yep. you're a mad motor mechanic and yep. well, you drive your own say, car. Uh, let's just say I can pull an engine apart and put it back together and no bolts left over. <laughs> Which is amazing. Which is kind of neat. Well, you wouldn't find many people with unique ability doing that, you know, having that self-sufficiency, and that's what I really respect on you. Um, we'll start winding down and I think, you know, I just want a couple, two more questions really to ask of you, Mr. Alan Parsons, and it's wonderful having you in today. I really appreciate it. For the younger generation from First Nations or from anywhere, what do you see the opportunities are for the younger generation of Australia? Well, it's really interesting that there are many opportunities um, it's just trying to find the pathway that creates those opportunities because there's so many distractions 
there's technology, there's all kinds of other distractions that take people off to um, not explore their potentiality. Um, and so it's kind of really important to be able to facilitate or to create a, a mechanism where um, people feel comfortable about exploring their potentiality. And sometimes these are things they've never even thought that they can do. And so here's me, who'd have thought it, as I say these days, who'd have thunk it, you know? Um, there's me standing on the milk crate, you know, pulling engines apart and doing this and doing that. And, um, and there's the old saying where there's a will, there's a way, but there's also a driving force that is important to create and to um, allow to unfold in a way that people are not forced into doing something, but they can feel comfortable to have a go. And so with the younger generation, lots of distractions out there. So, um, so how, can we, how can we support them? Young yes, people. well, there's all manner of how that can be done. And the, and the whole um, thing revolves around um, not so much the school system, although that's part of it, um, but around what parents feel that they can um, offer for the children. At this point, I'm involved with kindy kids. Ah, tell us about that. Well... Kindy kids. What can I say? So, <laughs> so you go and speak to kindy kids. What age? Four year old. Okay. So they say you should never work with children or animals. And and it so, can be scary, yes. but amazingly you know, rewarding. And and when you tell them stories, it's cultural stories. Cultural stories. Yes. And um, how, how's the reaction from the young? They love it. And what do they love about it? It brings them back to the connection to the land and the connection to who they are. Um, and so it's kind of like when I did a presentation with one kindy up in near where I live, um, I told the story about circles. And I said, well, the sun is a circle, the moon is a circle, and if you cut a tree inside the tree, it's all circles. But I was able to share with the children that there's one really, really, really special circle, and it's called the yarning circle. Mm. And in the audience was a little four-year-old by the name of Charlotte. And Charlotte went home that night and talked to her parents and said, oh, Uncle Al came in. We had this great conversation about circles, and, and a yarning circle was be really something nice. And so it just turned out that... Charlotte's parents were landscapers. <laughs> <laughs> and so the importance of a yarning circle, she obviously saw that, but what, what is so important for First Nations and, and around the world? I think many cultures use the circle uh, apart from the people in the West generally, isn't it, you know? They normally have someone out the front and everyone sort of listening, but in Indigenous cultures around the world, these circles are important. Why is that? Well, it's, it's open. It's not a linear thing. Mm. It's a circular thing. So there's no hierarchy. There's no rulership. 
there's no... So everyone's equal to Everyone yeah. is pretty much equal. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's amazing. So yeah. Charlotte's parents came in and put their little excavator in and took down the fence and levelled the ground out and put these sandstone blocks in and pavers and new turf and when the, all the children came back from their holidays, there it was. Oh, how beautiful. And that's there permanently now where the Absolutely. kids the kids can sit in circle with you when you come and tell stories. And Not only that, yep. if I said to the children that when uh, sometimes things happen, sometimes someone might say something or something may happen that mm, you feel a little bit upset about or there's something that mm, so you can actually go to the circle and take your friend there. Wow. This is four-year-olds. Yeah. And you can talk about why you are upset. That's wonderful, isn't it? And so these four-year-olds are using that. That's powerful, Alan. It really is. Yeah, very powerful. So you talk about where we're headed, mm. and I think that um, this is one aspect of where we can begin with the awareness of people, children, with awareness, with um, dynamics of um, inclusion, healing, all those aspects that we have discussed and talked about. And part of the healing is these sharing of stories and getting to know each other a little bit better. You know, our backstories and, you know, your backstory is fascinating and I, I really appreciate you coming in today. You know, a little wet day it is today, but beautiful that you've made it all the way down from up north of Kabulcha. Thank you so much, Uncle Alan. And uh, if you've got anything you want to conclude with, any words of wisdom from Mr. Parsons to share? No, you're good. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back again next week. And I think we'll have uh, one of our other co-hosts, Yarika or Taitunga, um, sharing with a guest in our studio. Thanks to our audio specialist, John Bossack from Audio Advantage. Thanks, Uncle Alan, for coming and have a great day.